my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times telling you what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, less than two years after Boris Johnson's election-winning mantra, get Brexit done, are we getting done by Brexit? From farmers to fishermen, there have been complaints that leaving the European Union has led to broken promises and a sense of betrayal even from people who voted leave in the 2016 referendum. Now there are empty supermarket shelves, caused partly by an exodus of EU truckers. It's been a nightmare to get drivers. You just can't... There just seems to be nobody around, and drivers are your tools, and at the minute it's getting harder and harder to find them. And it's just causing us chaos. Of course, Covid has been a factor too. The so-called pingdemic forcing millions of workers to self-isolate. But that will eventually disappear. Brexit, it seems, is here to stay, with all that entails. It's had a fundamental impact on what we export already. It is very, very hard for UK-based food companies to export to the EU now. And those businesses are having to make radical decisions about whether that is a market they can even choose to serve anymore because of the barriers they face. All that to come, plus Byline Times writer Sam Bright on his exclusive story about the government's Brexit committees that haven't met for months, despite being set up to deal with the fine detail of our departure. First, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times and this podcast could not exist without you. Subscriptions to our monthly newspaper, the Byline Times, mean that we're not dependent on any media tycoon or corporate sponsor to survive, and we can tell it like it is, without fear, without favour. Get more details on how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Now, when I went to buy our family groceries online the other day, I decided to cancel the order because the supermarket wasn't able to supply about a third of the goods. A phenomenon repeated in my local stores. There are empty shelves where food used to be. You can only guess what the right-wing papers would have made of that if Labour were in power. Cue grainy shots of bread queues in the old Soviet Union. As it is, reporting on this story has been pretty muted, even though the likes of M&S have warned of worse to come. Of course, the pandemic and the need to self-isolate is a contributory factor, forcing shop workers and staff in the supply chain to stay at home. But a shortage of drivers post-Brexit is also hugely important. Last year, around one million people who had been living in the UK but weren't born here decided to quit the country, including untold numbers of truckers born in the EU. Uh, It's been a nightmare to get drivers, you just can't, there just seems to be nobody around and drivers are your tools and at the minute it's getting harder and harder to find them and it's just causing us chaos. It's had a massive impact, we've had a lot of our um, European drivers actually go back um, just due to paperwork and you know it's just a lot easier to go back to their countries. We've had Spain, Portuguese and uh, Czech Republic driver just, you know, just go back home. It's easier for them paperwork-wise and it's just causing chaos. You know, our customers are our priority and we work with the supermarket, so definitely without a doubt we're going to have a major shortage. Um, already our customers are struggling to get some products in um, 
from suppliers, you know, Warburton and stuff like that, um, to dispatch out to the supermarkets. I just think it's only going to get worse, that there's going to be a major food shortage. Well, I passed my test when I was 21. I was lucky, I managed to keep going all through COVID. And from a driver's point of view, the lockdown was lovely. There was no traffic on the roads. So I'm an owner driver. There's plenty of work about at the moment. I could put another lorry on the road, but I couldn't find it, can't find any drivers to, to work for me, basically. There's a shortage of labour. There's delays if we have a export trailer and pre-Brexit, when a trailer came off the, the ferry, we could pick it up and go straight away. Now it has to come off the ferry, then await customs clearance. And I've been sat around for two or three hours waiting for them to clear customs. And some of my colleagues have lost a whole day waiting for a trailer to clear customs before they can leave the quay. And as an owner driver, I could put another vehicle on the road, but I can't find a driver for it, so I'm staying at one vehicle. The ferry operator I work for, they're crying out for haulers uh, all the time now. They just cannot find people to, to pull the trailers because people are struggling for drivers. I've only got three years left in me till I retire. I've got a son now who's 22 and I'm discouraging him from coming into this industry. You see, he wants to take over from myself. I've told him I don't think it's the thing to do at the moment. There's not a lot of future in it. So the government have suggested today that they extend the driver's hours or relax the driver's hours um, so they can work longer shifts, which I just don't think that's going to be a solution at all. You're driving a 44 tonne vehicle with a lot of responsibility that you know if you're tired or whatever it's a big vehicle that you can cause major issues with it's not the solution. That's Laura Salt operations manager at Steve Fellows road haulage based in Burton-on-Trent and you also heard Steve Burgess a director of G Burgess and Son in Kent both talking to Byline TV. To get a wider industry perspective, I've been speaking to Shane Brennan, Chief Executive of the Cold Chain Federation, which represents companies who get your chilled and frozen food from A to B. His members include major supermarkets and logistics firms. What difference has Brexit made to them? It's been a huge disruption to the back office operation. Things that were very simple to do in the period before we exited the European Union have become significantly more time intensive, significantly less certain. The man hours involved in doing relatively straightforward tasks in getting product through the border have got up dramatically. Obviously, the burden of that is disproportionately weighed on those that do international haulage, do international fetching and carrying. There are lots of businesses in the cold chain that don't leave the UK shores. They receive goods into their warehouse and they move them around the UK. They're less affected. But those that are doing the international haulage work have had their business completely transformed. So just break that down for me a little bit then. What kind of things in the back office have changed? A logistics operator's job is a customer needs to move a product from A to B. They need a vehicle to come to A, pick it up and take it to B. And that is a very straightforward thing to do. The problem with Brexit is if that A is in outside the UK and in the European Union, there is now a significant amount of requirements like having customs declarations done, making sure you've got veterinary inspectors available on site to inspect the goods and observe them entering the lorry and the doors being closed on those goods, making sure that the coordination between the customer, the haulage operator, 
and the person to whom the goods are being delivered are all in a line and doing the things they need to do paperwork-wise in order to make sure that delivery can be fulfilled. So pre-Brexit, these are things that simply would have been done without the level of paperwork, without the level of red tape. Exactly. It wasn't part of the job. And different businesses have reacted in different ways. There are some businesses who have decided that the way to cope with Brexit is to become a different type of business. So they've actually become a paperwork manager. They provide that service to the market and they've employed the people, the specialists, change the nature of their customer relations, their contracts, so that they are in charge of the process of getting the goods through the border. Others have said, it's up to you to make sure those things are in place, but we won't collect from you unless we are reassured that you are ready to go, because we're not going to take the risk of carrying your goods and finding that they won't be able to get through the border because you haven't completed the paperwork correctly. So this additional layer of bureaucracy and Adding to that, we've been told on Byline Times, there have been problems with hauliers getting people to drive their trucks. There simply aren't enough lorry drivers around. Yeah, well, that's one of the crucial things about understanding our logistics network is, you know, when it comes to goods coming to the UK from the European Union and goods leaving the UK to go to the European Union, we rely on foreign hauliers to do that work. And so it's not UK-based businesses that do that work. About 80% of the haulage done that way is done by non-UK national businesses. So that's one problem. And Brexit has caused a lot of those businesses to feel like the UK is too much hassle to serve. And you know, once the pandemic hit, keeping your operations closer to home has become the default for anyone operating across Western Europe and Eastern Europe for that matter. Um, when it comes to domestic-based businesses, well, they've tried to divert their business operations onto stuff that doesn't have that risk on domestic work. But you're telling me that there are exporters to the UK who, contrary to some of the reassurances we were given before Brexit, have decided that no matter what the size of the UK market, it really isn't worth their while sending goods here. It's a transformationally different cost now. Say it cost £500, £600 to bring a load into the UK, that's now going to be double that. So the question is, is can you find the customers that want to do that? and Are they willing to pay that price? And if you're not, well, you can put your assets to better use somewhere that doesn't have the same risk and disruption as there is bringing stuff to the UK. Your opinion is a big market. If you're a Polish-based haulage company, there's plenty of work in Germany, there's plenty of work in France, there's plenty of work in Poland, for that matter. And so you don't necessarily need to service the UK with all those additional risks and burdens. You've often chosen not to do that. And within the UK, it seems quite clear now that we were pretty reliant for a substantial part of our haulage workforce on migrant workers from the EU who now feel that they will be better off going back somewhere within the European Union. Yeah, 15 to 20% of our driving workforce was non-UK nationals pre-Brexit. Now, one of the crucial things in this you have to bear in mind is that we can't isolate Brexit from the COVID pandemic. And one of the things that happened in March and April of last year is that people made the decision to be close to their families. It's a very natural human reaction to do that at a time of uncertainty. So those people have left the UK during that time. The question we don't know the answer to, and because the pandemic hasn't finished, is are they going to come back? And did they make arrangements before they left to be able to come back? And so we are in a very uncertain window of time right now as to whether what percentage of that 15-20% that we relied on will be in our workforce in 2022 and beyond. So there is a very, very uh, worrying time for, for operators on that basis. Yeah, and of course, consumers have to understand that COVID is a very particular thing. We don't 
quite know how long it's going to be with us and people have heard about the so-called pink demic this week the idea that people who've been close to people who have covid are being forced to self-isolate and that's clearly had a, a damaging effect on the workforce throughout all sectors of the economy but what is your assessment of the impact of brexit on the supply of food both into the uk in your sector and out of the UK in your sector? It's had a fundamental impact on what we export already. It is very, very hard for UK-based food companies to export to the EU now. And those businesses are having to make radical decisions about whether that is a market they can even choose to serve anymore because of the barriers they face. For businesses bringing products into the UK, actually the Brexit effect has been hidden because we still, today eight months on from the end of our membership of the European Union, haven't imposed any major restrictions on goods coming to the UK from the European Union. So we have an asymmetric situation where it's very easy still to bring goods into the UK from a Brexit perspective, specifically, but very hard to export. The government now needs to tell us at what point will they start to impose the sorts of burdens on European exporters to the UK that UK exporters face today. And that will be the crunch point when we know for sure how big the Brexit effect is. Because at the moment then, as you describe it, British companies seem to have the worst of both worlds, finding it difficult to export and therefore potentially undercut by competitors from the European Union. Absolutely. The UK food producing business has got far less options than it had before. And they are facing huge amounts of cost, huge amounts of uncertainty, and are having a torrid time of it. The European-based businesses are not facing that additional layer of problem because they don't have to contend with Brexit in the same way. Consumers have reported over a number of weeks now shortages of certain foodstuffs on the shelves. Is that related to the problems that you've identified? Is that related to Brexit? Only in as far as it's related to people and the availability of labour. We know that there are far fewer non-UK nationals working in the UK right now, and that is in part due to Brexit. But it is predominantly due to the COVID pandemic. And because, like I say, the UK government hasn't put restrictions on goods coming into the UK yet. So that is very much a COVID-specific problem on our shelves right now. The problem is, is as we start to look to recovery into the autumn, Brexit will still be a big factor in how well we can recover. There's a lot of nervousness across the industry about once we get through this crisis, are we not facing yet another Brexit crisis in the end of this year? Did your organisation have a stance about Brexit before the referendum? No, we didn't have a stance on whether or not the UK should be a member of the European Union or not. That is a That was and is a political decision. We had a very strong stance that if we were to exit European Union, then we need to have a very clear operational plan for how that transition would happen and that we would make decisions that help supply chains to continue to flow. The reality is that every turn since the referendum, the political realities have converged to take the most damaging and dislocating decision in how to operate the separation. And that has meant that food supply chains have really struggled to sustain themselves and meet the constant crises that we've had to deal with ever since the the, the referendum. It's very hard not to feel as though 
the people that operate in the food supply chain are the collateral damage of the political grandstanding that's gone on at every turn since the Brexit referendum. And it didn't have to be that way. And the way you describe it, there is no certainty in the near term anyway that things are going to get better anytime soon. No, we've got an exhausted workforce that has dealt with crisis upon crisis. And it is Brexit and it's COVID. And it's still probably as acute today as it has been at any point in the last 18 months, two years. The UK can be self-sufficient in certain goods and can produce more and service more of its own needs in some areas of the food supply chain. But there are so many things that we can't produce domestically and that we do rely on on other countries to supply. And so it's hard to not see it as a net negative if we make it harder for our businesses in the other parts of the world to import into the UK. And so we're very keen to see that avoided from happening. I guess what's regrettable is we end up in a situation where it's very easy to, to sell stuff to the UK, but very hard for the UK to sell stuff anywhere else. And that doesn't feel like the Brexit we voted for. Shane Brennan. Now, the government is pinning its hopes on trade deals like the one it struck recently with Australia, though that has been criticised, not least by UK beef and dairy farmers who fear an influx of cheap tariff-free meat from down under. Their cries of sellout are echoed by many parts of the fishing fleet, which now has to deal with vast quantities of additional red tape, whilst EU fishermen will have substantial access to UK waters for the next five years and possibly indefinitely under a deal signed by Boris Johnson. You'd think with all this going on, the government would be desperate to thrash out the minutiae of its trading relationship with the EU. But as Byline Times Chief Politics and Investigations reporter Sam Bright has discovered, 16 of the 18 committees set up to deal with the EU-UK Trade Cooperation Agreement haven't met this year. We found that as part of the free trade agreement that we signed with the European Union, certain committees have been set up very sensibly, I have to say, which is a word we don't often attach to Boris Johnson's government. And each of these committees has a designated area. So whether that relates to road haulage or air travel or fishing rights. So civil servants from the European Union and the UK can get together within these committees to sort out any issues that might be occurring within these certain areas of of policy. And I found that only two out of these 18 committees have actually met since the free trade agreement was signed back in December last year, which is quite surprising considering the amount of problems we've seen during that period. You would have thought that they might have been quite useful, particularly on fishing, which we obviously saw quite immediately, was suffering from the immediate repercussions of Brexit. I think that committee is due to meet relatively soon, but hasn't met yet. The only two that have met are on energy and on social security coordination, not two areas of policy that you really associate with the Brexit chaos that has ensued over the the last few months, really. And these committees then, they sit beneath something called the EU UK Partnership Council that has met and that was chaired by the Cabinet Minister for EU Relations, David Frost, and the European Commission Vice President, Maris Sefcovic. So the body at the top 
of this has met. But I guess these committees are meant to deal with the fine detail of Brexit, the the practical issues that might arise day to day between two trading partners now working under new regulations. Yeah, and these are powerful committees. It's interesting to state, for one, that the Partnership Council sits above this, as you say, and that David Frost is the lead on that, considering that Frost was essentially an unelected, well, he still is, he's an unelected bureaucrat. He was brought in to head up trade negotiations under Boris Johnson. He was then appointed to the House of Lords, and now he has a ministerial role because members of the House of Lords can be appointed to cabinet, which is a trend that has increased under this government, which is Hugely ironic, considering that one of the ways that Vote Leave sold Brexit was on the idea that we would be getting rid of a lot of unelected bureaucrats. But the specialist committees beneath Frost, they've not met so far. These are powerful committees as well. Parliament's European Scrutiny Committee is actually looking into their powers because it's concerned that they're relatively broad And there's not a great deal of transparency requirements from these committees to declare what they're doing, the amendments that they're making to the free trade agreement. There is an assumption that through negotiating the finer details of Brexit, that they will actually improve the situation. But that's not necessarily the case. And I have to say, I agree that there needs to be mechanisms in place to hold them to account and the civil servants taking taking part in the negotiations, because we've had years of wrangling over Brexit. And it seems strange that the debate could be over so suddenly, and yet negotiations are still ongoing between the EU and the UK. And the Seafood Working Group, which isn't part of this structure, but obviously it's hugely important to UK fishermen, that hasn't met either. No, this was set up as really a PR exercise by the government in the wake of the turmoil that we saw post-January that fishermen were experiencing, not able to export their goods to Europe as easily as they otherwise were able to. We saw fish rotting at ports, etc. So the government set up this working group, a sort of cooperation between various industry figures, business leaders, and the government to try and figure out a way forward. But yeah, I discovered that as of 25th of March, the group essentially temporarily disbanded and hasn't met since. The government says that it was paused to allow officials to focus on developing longer term system improvements, which the group had identified as a priority, which makes it seem to me as though the group had decided that actually no temporary remediation could be found and the problems related to the fundamental issues derived from Brexit. And there's actually no plaster that you can put on that. So they thought it was a bit pointless to meet anymore, which will be of concern to lots of fishermen. A few days earlier, I found records of a parliamentary committee where a fisherman warned that 80% of the problems that they'd been experiencing in January were still very much present. So these issues haven't gone away, but the government either seems that it can't do anything or doesn't want to. Indeed. And the Northern Ireland Protocol, which has effectively put a border between the UK and Northern Ireland down the Irish Sea, which is something Boris Johnson promised would never happen, continues to remain unresolved. Let's just have a listen to two Belfast councillors, John Kyle and Katie Nicholl, who is now the mayor of Belfast, about the link between Brexit and disturbances in Northern Ireland over the Northern Ireland Protocol. 
Boris Johnson promised that there wouldn't be a border. He promised the DUP there wouldn't be a border in the Irish Sea. When there was a border, clearly there was going to be a border. He denied the fact that there was going to be one, refused to acknowledge that. So people feel that they were betrayed by the prime minister, who was frankly dishonest in his dealings with them. And so therefore, they look at the Republic of Ireland, who have been consistent, who have set out their stall, who have said what they want to achieve, who have steadfastly defended the rights of the nationalist population to remain Irish. And unionists feel that the British government, and Boris Johnson in particular, did not defend their interests, did not act in their best interests. But in a sense, Northern Ireland became collateral damage to achieving a Brexit for the rest of the United Kingdom. So there is a sense of betrayal there. Uh, There's a sense that Boris Johnson has not acted honourably or honestly. Our very fragile peace exists because we operate on the basis of cooperation and interdependence. If you leave the customs union and the single market, you've got to put a border somewhere. You either put it along the 310 miles of the hard physical border or you put it through the Irish Sea. And I think that there's the opportunity where we could really make something great for Northern Ireland and Northern Ireland has so much talent and so much to offer. We could have been this gateway to both that hasn't been grasped. And I feel like people are being manipulated, fears are being manipulated and tensions are being created. And the people who are paying the price are the working class communities again and again. So that was John Kyle and Katie Nicholl, two councillors in Belfast. It's pretty clear that that situation remains unresolved as well, Sam. Yeah, this is one of the most fascinating aspects of Brexit, that Northern Ireland was the crunch point for so many years. If we remember, Theresa May got in a real bind about it. You know, how exactly were we going to simultaneously have seamless transition of goods and services between GB and Northern Ireland and also Northern Ireland and the EU whilst also separating ourselves from the continent. Uh, It's sort of an impossible question for the various prime ministers to solve. It seems as though Boris Johnson has done his usual trick of promising one thing and then doing an entirely different thing in the hope that obviously getting Brexit done would win him an election and get him into 10 Downing Street, which he was right about. And then betting on the fact that the EU wouldn't rip up a Brexit agreement, even if the UK broke the terms of it. So it'll be really interesting to see how this resolves itself, if in fact it does. And I think the long-term security and political implications for Ireland are quite profound. And we obviously saw violence earlier on in the year, which was due to a mixture of factors. But He's got a real problem on his hands, Boris Johnson, in the medium to long term. And we could well see the unravelling of the Good Friday Agreement if it really turns south. It's ironic, isn't it? That phrase you used, get Brexit done. That was the slogan on which Boris Johnson won the 2019 election. It's clear, isn't it, that Brexit is very far from done. There's loads of fine detail, which you can argue should have been addressed before the deal was done, but which wasn't, which is now impacting seriously on the lives of British exporters. Yeah, definitely. And we always said, particularly on the Remain side of the debate, that Brexit was was a once in a generation event and would have implications that would last 50 to 100 years. I mean, if you remember, the Brexiteers said that we wouldn't see the benefits of Brexit for years to come, potentially decades. 
so we had a signal there that this was going to be never ending. And I think actually for Boris Johnson, he doesn't want it to end. Again, he made one promise to the electorate and now he's doing something entirely different because it benefits him. It clearly stamps his authority on pro-Brexit red wall seats that the Tories managed to capture in 2019 and they want to hold in future elections. That is the one thing that really drove people in large numbers to vote for the Conservative Party. And so Boris Johnson isn't going to want to dispense with that issue as an electoral tool for the next election. He's going to want it to rumble on in the background so then he can win those votes again. But a little bit like the culture wars that he stoked around the England team, around taking the knee at the European Championships, this is a a problematic issue for him, I would suggest, because if he keeps the Brexit issue alive, yes, it does appeal to the core of his vote and remind voters that he was the man who, inverted commas, got Brexit done, it might also leave people with the opportunity to say, these are a whole series of unresolved, ongoing issues for which you, Prime Minister, are responsible. Yeah, unfortunately, in this regard, Byline is acting substantially as the head of the opposition Um, because we've seen very little of this from the Labour Party and from Keir Starmer, who, let's not forget, was one of the most vocal opponents of Brexit um, during the, the great Brexit wars of 2016 to 2019. The Labour Party has fallen silent because it wants to appeal to the same very pro-Brexit red wall seats that Boris managed to capture in 2019. And so there's a question as to whether it can actually puncture through to the electorate. Byline TV and podcast, I'm sure, have a great reach, but being able to convert millions of voters is probably, unfortunately, just beyond our reach at this moment in time. What we're talking about strikes me, Sam, as something of a democratic deficit because we have a pro-Brexit government party. That's a position that people are entitled to take and people are entitled to vote for. You then have an opposition party who in their bones may be Remainer, but who are afraid to say so openly for fear of upsetting the electorate. And then we have parties who in electoral terms are below that in terms of their reach, like the Lib Dems, who progressive voters might be wary of voting for in any case because of their record in the coalition government, the austerity years from 2010. So we live in a democracy at the moment where voters might say, I don't have a party that I can vote positively for that I trust if I'm a Remainer. Yeah, especially with the electoral system that we have as well. So a lot of pro-Remain seats, particularly in the South, are generally competitions between the Conservative Party and the Liberal Democrats. And so if you are someone who's a bit disillusioned with the Lib Dems after their record in the coalition government, you could vote for Labour, but it's not going to make a great deal of difference. In fact, what it's probably going to do is take away from the Liberal Democrat vote and hand the pro-Brexit Conservatives the seat. So yeah, voters are in the mire generally. I think that Labour's strategically made quite a big error here. I might have to eat my words on a future podcast, Adrian, so don't do invite me back if, if I'm wrong. But the Lib Dems are actually gaining a lot of support currently. I think their standing in the polls has gone up to roughly 10 to 12%. The Greens, similarly, are doing very well. So they're pulling away 
quite a bit of that Labour Remain vote, which is considerable. Lots of Liberal Democrats who were disillusioned with Nick Clegg's role in the coalition government defected essentially to the Labour Party after 2010 and gave Labour a majority amongst sort of liberal, progressive, urban, semi-rural voters. And lots of those people seem to be returning to the Liberal Democrats now and to the Green Party. So you've got sort of a fracturing of Labour's vote in those, what you'd say, more liberal, progressive-minded seats. But then the Conservatives, due to their strength on the culture war, their ability to really create division and hostility, something that they're they're very good at, they're trained at uh, over recent years, and due to Brexit, still at the forefront of people's minds, Labour's not winning the amount of votes that it needs to in the red wall to be able to take back the seats that the Conservative Party won at the last election. So you've got Labour stuck in between a, a rock and a hard place um, and could ultimately see its vote being pulled from either side. Sam Bright, and you can read more from Sam at Byline Times. Don't forget, it's subscriptions to the monthly Byline Times newspaper that fund this podcast. So go on, do the decent thing. Find details of how to subscribe at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. I'm Adrian Goldberg. You can follow me on Twitter at Goldberg Radio, and you can follow the at Byline Times podcast there too. See you next week. Thanks for listening.